Thanks for listening to this sermon podcast for Real Life Church Pullman. We exist to help people know and become like Jesus. We are in week three of our Matthew series. Week three of our Matthew series. We have one more week to go. The, the last, uh, really the last month, last 22 days or 21 days to be exact, we're on Matthew chapter 22. We've been doing a chapter a day in our devotional reading plan. So hopefully some of you have been keeping up with us in that where you do a chapter a day. We're going to do 28 days in, in Matthew. So we have one week left. And our sermons have been based off of what the readings have been the week prior. And so, how many of you are, are getting something out of Matthew each day? Four of us. Yes! It worked. No, this is good. It's, it's, I mean, it's not too late to catch up. You know, it's good to, to catch up and, and get into the readings. It's just good to, to get in the habit of being in the Word every single day, even just a chapter a day. Sometimes it starts with just a, a passage a day. You have to build up to it. But man, it is a discipline that will change your life. I, I believe that. I've seen it happen in my own life. It's, it's amazing how the things that God speaks to you daily in the Word translate so well into what you're going through that day. I've seen that happen many, many times. So get into the Word with us and, and see your life change. How's that sales pitch for you? Pretty good? All right, good. Well, I have a strange one for you today. I have a strange, uh, strange passage for you today, a very strange message for you today as well. In fact, how many of you saw the show Stranger Things? Am I hitting the right cultural <laughs> chords? I've tried The Office. That one didn't hit. I've tried Friends. That one didn't hit. How about Stranger Things? Did this one hit a little bit? Some of you are like, mm, this guy. Um, but Stranger Things, it came out before I had kids. So it's been out, it's been out at least over six years. And the aspect of the show that I think is really fascinating is the premise of the upside down. The upside down is this invisible reality that's hidden away under our reality that actually influences the things going on in our reality. And, and I really like that as, as a preacher and, and student of the word because so much of that relates to the spiritual realm that dwells around us. Because how many of you believe that there is a spiritual realm that influences our world here today? I think as Christians, as people who read and study the Bible, you can't really go, yeah, that's not there because it's everywhere in Scripture. It's everywhere is this idea of this invisible realm that's influencing the way that we make decisions here, the way that the world works. And so this premise of stranger things has always kind of stood out to me because of the aspect of the upside down and how that influences their world, and how the relation to that to our spiritual world today. Paul writes this in, in Ephesians 6.12, and I've always found this verse very fascinating. He says, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this darkness, against evil spiritual forces, in the heavens, and that word there is spiritual world, heavens. And so Paul is, is relating that there is an aspect of the upside down that affects and influences our world. There is a spiritual component, there's a spiritual ruler, principality, whatever your translation says there, authority that actually governs and influences evil and darkness in this world. Think about that as you kind of walk daily a little bit is that there's these spiritual invisible forces 
influencing our world around us. Paul believed this. Jesus believed this. I think we should recognize this and believe it as well, that there is a, a strange spiritual realm that affects us, influences the decisions of this world. In fact, if you were going to talk to an Israelite, first century or before, they would look at the nations of the world, and they would say that there's these rulers that govern and influence each one of these nations. So the writings of Babylon, they would have thought there were these lower, lowercase g gods that influenced the nations of Babylon, Assyria. They would have said the same thing about Rome. And so there's this idea of wrestling and struggling against these spiritual forces and rulers that are against us. So the passage today, I want to kind of start that way because the passage today really has spiritual ramifications. What Jesus does in the passage that we're going to study today sends a powerful message to these rulers of darkness. And it makes the story make so much more sense because I think a lot of times we read the story we're going to read, you just kind of gloss over it like, cool story, Jesus, let's go to the next one. Because it's a, it's a hard one to understand sometimes. So if you have your Bibles, let's gonna turn, we're going to look at Matthew chapter 17, 1 through 8. This is called the transfiguration. If you're familiar with the religious term for this, Jesus' transfiguration. So let's start to look at the first verse here, the setting of the showdown. Matthew 17, 1 says, After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and his brother John, his entourage, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. So context to this, in verse 16, or chapter 16, he's in Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi is a heavily Gentile place. And this is where he says the famous words to Peter, Upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Okay, so this is coming right off of that line to Peter. And if you look at the map here, Caesar of Philippi is not too far from Mount Hermon in the top corner there. And so Mount Hermon is where most biblical scholars think that this is taking place. The showdown of what's about to happen, the transfiguration is on Mount Hermon. And I think this gives us the why to the transfiguration. Why does Jesus do what he does? Well, he does it on top of Mount Hermon. And you have to understand that in the Old Testament, this region of Caesarea Philippi, Mount Hermon, was called the Valley of Bashan. The Valley of Bashan. If we have any psalmist or Old Testament nerds in here, the Valley of Bashan was known for evil, darkness, corruption. It was where the the worship of the, the god Baal was the greatest to the Canaanites. If you read Psalm 22... Psalm 22 is, in the first verse of Psalm 22 is where Jesus gets the line, my God, my God, why did you forsake me on the cross? Well, later in that verse, in verse 12, in that passage, in verse 12, it talks about the bulls of Bashan being around the suffering king, laughing and pulling and tugging, and this idea of this spiritual component of the bulls of Bashan and their joy of seeing the suffering king on the cross. So as Jesus is saying on the cross and he's, he's yelling those words out, my God, my God, why do you forsake me? There is a, a component to that that is also recognizing that there is a connection to Psalm 22 and that the bulls of Bashan are laughing and thinking that they won. So here we have the darkness. The darkest place in the Hebrew mind is in the valley of Bashan. The highest place in the darkest valley is is Mount Hermon, 
And if you, are, if you really want to go into Genesis nerdum with me for a second, in the first century, the Second Temple Judaism, which is the first century and a little bit before that, Mount Hermon was also the place where the Israelites thought that Genesis 6 occurred. Now, Genesis 6 is that very strange passage where these spiritual beings come down and actually find the women of the world attractive, and they create the, Elo- the not Elohim, the Nephilim. Right? Go back and read that. That's a wild one, too. I don't have time to go into that. But it's also the place where they say this is where a lot of those principalities, rulers, began to divide out the nations. This is where they taught humanity how to build weapons. This is, there's a lot to that story that these Israelite readers are putting into where Mount Hermon is, the significance of it. So basically what I want you to recognize in Mount Hermon is that God in Jesus is going to the darkest place in the darkest valley where the greatest rebellion against God occurred in the spiritual realm, and that's the setting of where the transfiguration is going to be. Think about that. He's going into the enemy's backyard, and he's about to throw sand in his face. That's our Jesus. He's going to go right into the enemy's backyard, and he's going to say, hey, you had this before, but this one's mine now. This is mine now. This is how cool Jesus is. Is This is the kind of stuff he does as he goes into the darkest of places and he says, this is mine. I'm reclaiming this. I think that's really neat. So Jesus chose this mountain because it was the enemy's backyard. The holy spot. If they had a holy spot, this was it. I think that is really interesting and why he does what he does is important here. He's going to let them know that the king of the world, the king of creation, has arrived. This is how he does it. In verses 2 through 5, on top of the dark mountain of Mount Hermon, he was transfigured in front of them. He, He metamorphed is the Greek word there. He metamorphed. His face shone like the sun. His clothes became as white as the light. Suddenly Moses and Elijah appeared to them talking with him. Then Peter said to Jesus, I have an idea. Lord, it's good for us to be here if you want. I will set up three shelters here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, suddenly a bright cloud covered them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Weird, right? How many of you have read that passage and just kind of like, let's just move on? When you were reading Matthew 17 last week, you're like, cool, moving on. But there is so much here. I, I could talk hours about just these few passages, these few lines right here. There's so much that's happening here. The hardest part about this message was figuring out what to actually tell you about this passage. Okay? But the transfiguration of Jesus is the most overt revealing of God's glory contained anywhere in the four Gospels. This is the most overt showing of God's glory in Jesus than anywhere else in the four Gospels. Something that the Hebrew writer reflected on, something that John reflected on. In Hebrews 1, the, the first line of Hebrews, this is what they say, the sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact expression of his nature. This is something the Hebrew author is thinking about, is remembering the transfiguration, that the radiance of God's glory is seen in Jesus. He is the exact representation of the Lord God. In John 1, as he is reflecting on this in his gospel, 
He says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We observed his glory. We saw it. The glory of the one and only son of the father. So you can see how this story had huge ramifications through the witnesses and the first generations of the church was was how the glory of God was revealed in the darkest of places on earth. This would have meant the world to these Israelite writers. And the images that we are to think about when it comes to Jesus' transfiguration, our minds are to be thrown back to things like Mount Sinai. When the fire of God, the cloud of God covers over the mountain and the glory of the Lord filled the top of that mountain. When we think of transfiguration, we're thinking of stories like Mount Sinai. We're thinking of of 1 Samuel when God fills the temple with his glory, with the fire and clouds, where there was so much glory within the temple that the priests couldn't even get inside the building. It was a moment of, of magnificence and radiance and evidence of God's presence here on earth. Here's an actual photograph from the time. They didn't have different cameras back then. But you can see that there's imagery of Old Testament happenings here within Jesus. That we're supposed to make these connections. The clouds marking the idea of divinity. If you were coming in with clouds, amen, brother. If you were coming in with clouds, you were coming in with this idea of divinity. You know, Daniel 7 is a great one as well. It talks about the Son of Man riding in on clouds with full authority and everlasting kingdom. So when you hear reading about clouds, you're reading about the divinity of God filling the area. When you read about fire, fire has two components. It has this idea of purification and righteousness, but it also has the idea of illumination. Remember the burning bush, how it lit up but didn't burn? Illumination, lighting up areas bringing things of, of righteousness. And then in Daniel 7, again, the, the pure white clothes of the, of the ancient one, the Almighty, that's being revealed, talking about his, his rightness in judging, his rightness in being the king in the way that he thinks and makes decrees. And all of these images are now wrapped up into what we're seeing here, is that we're seeing the God-man, Jesus, being revealed in the darkest of places. We're seeing righteousness observed in the most unrighteous of places. We're seeing the purity of his judgments being seen in the places of greatest rebellion on Mount Hermon. This is our great Jesus. Jesus' transfiguration is saying a few things, but I think the main thing that he's saying here and what he's doing here is he's going into these, this darkness of, of mountain. And revealing himself to these rulers and principalities and the spiritual around he's saying, I am the Lord God. This mountain is mine and all who come to it and come to me now. You think this caused some issues for Jesus? Oh, this is the most overt showing of who he is anywhere in the Gospels. And this is why, and particularly in the Gospel of Mark, it's the climax of the book. Everything from this moment, the transfiguration, leads directly to the cross. This is Jesus' last big overt, here I am, this is mine, I am the Lord God, this is why he dies. Some, a lot of biblical scholars will say this is a, a baiting of these Ephesians 6 rulers, right? 
Because Jesus, he did a lot of great things. He was a miracle worker. He was a healer. But so was, was, so was Elijah. He was a great teacher. He knew the word of God really well. So was Moses. But none of them transfigured like this. None of them had the glory of God, the radiance of his glory, the expression, the exact representation, expression of who he was. Which is why we have Elijah and Moses there talking, is that they're saying, everything is leading to this. Everything we did led to this. Elijah, the greatest prophet, Moses, the greatest teacher of the law, everything directly leading to this person. He is far greater than us, is the message that we're supposed to get here. Everything going this direction. And this is why, hey, I think the spiritual rulers of the world were like, let's kill him. I think that's exactly what he wanted them to do. How do you get rid of the Messiah? You kill him. It's a baiting. It's a luring in. It's an expression going into the the enemy's house, throwing sand in his face and seeing, what are you going to do now? Not realizing what the plan was. And then the idea of my beloved son, the one whom I am well pleased, our minds are probably harking back to what? His baptism? We also have, this is also a, a kingship decree. If, if you were reading the Old Testament, the anointed one of Israel, the king of Israel, was also called the son, the anointed son. And so with Jesus transfigured in his glory, shining, being the exact representation of God in this, on this dark mountain, the cloud, right? God comes in and he says, this is my king. This is the anointed son. This is my Messiah. This is everything that I've been pointing to. Everything from Genesis 3 to now has been leading to this person. Listen to him. Shema him. Listen to him. You think the three that were there, James, Peter, and John were like, okay. We'll stop building in this tent. We'll listen to him. So we're seeing so much happening here with the, with the representation of God in Jesus being revealed in dark places. We're seeing God's confirmation of his kingship and his, his anointedship, his messiahship being thrown onto him. There's so much happening here. But I think the one, one of the main things I want you to, to walk away with from this portion of the text because it says a lot about the character of God, is that Jesus always enters into the darkest of places for us. I'll set that in. In the darkest of places, Jesus goes in it with us and for us. Because he didn't go to that mountain just to go, hey, look how cool I am. I am transfigured. No, he he was going in there going, I'm doing this to reveal myself for those who will come after me so that I'll be sent to the cross to die for those who will come to me for the world. Think about this. That he chose to go into the dark places for you and I. And he still goes into those dark places for you and I. I think about the... Harking into Genesis 6 with that weird story with, with the women of the world and, and the sons of God, which are the spiritual forces. And I think about him thinking of those women. 
Those women were, were abused and misused by these spiritual rulers and authorities. And he goes, I went in there for them to reclaim this whole thing for them. I think about it in my own life with the sins that I struggle with and the things I've come out of and struggled with. And he goes, I went in there for you. I was in there with you in the darkness in those, those hours and minutes where you're struggling. And I became illuminated. He lights up the darkness is what Jesus does. He, where he goes in the darkness of life, he exposes, he illuminates, and he says, I am here, I am the Lord God, come to me, listen to me. How many of us need to hear the voice of the Lord in our darkest moments? How many of you are just begging to hear, boy, I wish I could just hear his voice right now, in my darkest of days, in my darkest of hours? We have a king anointed and powerful who comes ready to reclaim us from the darkness, to reclaim us from our rebellion, to reclaim us from our sin, reclaim us from those things that have happened to us or things we've done to others. He climbs the mountain, reveals himself to who he is, and he says, come and follow me, listen to me, be with me. I am who I am. You can see him saying that, right? And then as we continue on, Matthew 17, 5 through 8, he says, while he was still speaking, this is, let me just reiterate, while he was still speaking, suddenly a bright cloud covered them and a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased, listen to him. And the disciple response was, when they heard this, they fell face down and were terrified. Pretty logical reaction to all of this, I'd say. Jesus came up, touched them, and said, get up. Don't be afraid. When they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus alone. So here we have Peter trying to be like classic Peter, right? Like, let me do something for you, Lord, right? How many of us see Peter in our lives? You're seeing this magnificent thing, you're going, how can I be a part of this? Whereas God's like, just, to, just enjoy the view right now, Peter. Just enjoy what you're, see, what you're seeing right now, Peter. And the, and the real reaction to God's glory, this is a, a reaction you see throughout all of Scripture, is that people, when they come into the presence of God's glory, they fall face down and are terrified. It's a terrifying thing to stand before a holy God. It's a terrifying thing to, to be in the presence of a holy and mighty God, especially what they're exhibiting. I've never seen this, so it's hard for me to put myself in their sandals but I imagine this was a pretty terrifying experience. Anytime you faced the glory of God, it must have been a terrifying experience. But what Jesus does to these terrified individuals is very unique, something that we only see in Jesus. We see him touch them. Now, in the Old Testament, the glory of God was hidden away behind the Holy of Holies. The glory of God was, was very rarely ever ex- ex- seen to be observed. Moses got to kind of see it. He had this real shiny face from hanging out with the Lord so much. I've been trying to do that for years. Hasn't happened. So he's not the closest anyone's ever been able to actually get to touching the glory of God. But here we have Jesus actually touching humanity again. For the first time, as far as I know, with the glory of God. That in Jesus, 
The glory of God is not something that's this foreign, hidden away behind a, a temple wall like idea. That it's something that he actually comes and he touches us with it. And when you read the, the Gospels in particular, things that Jesus touches become restored. When he heals people, they're healed. When he says something to them and they touch him, they're healed. So as Jesus is touching these scared, terrified disciples of his, there's a restoration that's also coming to them. There's a restorative act being done with Jesus in his glory touching these disciples. In fact, it's a reversing of Eden in Genesis 3. So think about Genesis 3 for a minute if you know the story. Here we have a serpent, humanity, The serpent is now in God's house, causing rebellion, causing deception, influencing humanity to choose to rebel against God, causing major ramifications that we're still dealing with. Thanks, mom and dad, right? And here we have a story of the Lord God, now in the heart of darkness, an enemy's backyard, Talking with humanity again, but instead of rebellion, we see restoration. We see God restoring a relationship, a connection, a closeness that was separated in Genesis 3, where sin broke off this connection between us and our God. Jesus is now the only one who's now touching and restoring the presence of God with humanity. There is a a line here kind of directing us towards a full restorative act that will be done at the cross and the resurrection. The Hebrew author, Hebrews 2, 9 through 11, I think reflects on this as well. They write, but we do see Jesus, who was made made lower than the angels for a a while, but crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death so that by the grace of God, he, he might taste death for everyone and bringing many sons and daughters to glory. It was fitting that God, for whom, and through, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. Ultimately, the job was completed at the cross, right? To tell us die, it is finished at the cross. But this is an overt showing of the direction of which God is leading people into who follow him, who listen to him, who are touched by him, is a restorative re-bringing back into relationship with God where they are then brought into the glory of God. I don't think we can really wrap our heads around what that means. Be brought into the glory of God because of the finished work of Jesus. Now, when you think of glory, it's kind of a weird religious term. You know, we write songs about it. We make movies about it. One of the best ways to think about it in English is the word significance. Significance. It's the Hebrew word um, kadash. Kadash. It means weight or heaviness, right? It has weight. And, and you see it most often metaphorically in English, like, oh, man, that was heavy news, man. Right? Heavy. That's, that's the word kadash. That's where we get that. Like, oh, it's heavy. It's, it's, got, it's got significance to it. You know, we see it sometimes with people. You know, I was 
One time at a Denver Broncos football camp, and John Elway was about for me to Jeff in the back, and I couldn't even speak because I was so scared. And I was like, I want him to hear me, but at the same time, I didn't. You know, you ever been around somebody who you're just like fangirling over, right? That was me and John Elway. He had kadosh. He had significance. He had weight in my life. As a kid, looking at him going, wow, that's John Elway, right? So when we think about glory, we're thinking about significance. We're thinking about weight and heaviness. And, and what Jesus is, what, did, what he did here and what he's bringing us into is a heavy significance of recognizing now who we are in him. Do you walk around this world thinking that you have God's glory accessible to you? That where you go, you carry kadash, heaviness, significance. When you enter into a room, these spiritual rulers and authorities, they should panic because we've been brought into the glory of God. That we carry with it weight. When they see us, they're going, oh man, that Christian's here again. We have access to that. That's how we can live our lives. Too often, I think we, we live kind of this frightful, like, hopefully nothing happens to me kind of life. Where God's like, no, like, you've been brought into the glory of God. Walk confidently. Look who, look who he is. Look what he's done. What does this world mean if we have the glory of God with us? In the presence of our God. The significance that we've been given is beyond anything we'll ever see in this world because of what Jesus has done, because of what he's brought us into. Because he entered the darkness and brought a great light, we have now been given the light by grace in Jesus. So walk confidently, walk boldly, don't walk afraid. Don't walk nervous. Don't walk with anxieties about what could or could not happen. I'll end with this. You know, the chapter before this, again, I mentioned before, Jesus is sitting with his disciples. And they're sitting before a giant rock. You can actually go visit it today. It's in Caesarea Philippi. I put this in my devotional. So if you've read my, if you watch my devotional, just tune out for a second. But if you go to Caesarea Philippi today, or what was you Caesarea Philippi, you'll see a big rock with a big cave. And the Canaanites and the Romans and the Greeks, they all thought this was the gateway to death. This was the way to death. They worshipped it. They revered it. Jesus goes into that place too, right before this. He goes right into that place of death, sitting with his disciples. He sticks his hand on it. And he goes, the gates of hell will not prevail. In fact, the word prevail there has another meaning to it. We, we kind of use prevail as like, whatever comes against me, right? Which is true. Whatever comes against us won't prevail. But it's also a withstanding component. And withstanding takes the action and goes, hey, now we're going after death rather than it just coming after us. That the church itself, upon the gates of death, is an, an offensive force for the saving of lives. That radically changed the way I viewed that passage when I learned that. That it wasn't just about sitting around waiting for death to come over and I'm like, hey, I'm going to persevere, which there's a part of that. But it's also about the, the church of God, the, the people of God going after death. 
and death being defeated by the withstand. They cannot withstand what Jesus has done through his people. And I hope that you're getting, really walking away from this is really this idea of, boy, there is a power, there is a, a God that we serve that is big. And he likes to take us into dark places, but he's with us. And he, the darkness will not withstand us. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for who you are. Lord, your goodness, your majesty, Lord, your power. Lord, that you are with us in the darkness, that you go before us into the darkness, Lord, that you illuminate the darkness, that you reclaim us from death and sin. Lord, I just pray that everyone in this room, they get to experience your power, that they recognize your glory. That they see themselves, or see themselves through you, Lord. Not through what the world has done, not through what the world says they are, not through the significance of what this world may give them, but through your significance, Lord, your glory. Lord, that you went into darkness for us, to have us, to be in relationship with us, to be close to us, to bring justice to the darkest of the world. So Lord, I just pray as we start to begin and enter into communion here that we remember who you are and remember how we walk and we remember the things you've done for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for checking out this message from Real Life. You can find out more about us by going to rlcpullman.com or by following us on Facebook or YouTube. Until next time, have a great week.